0: Four, just seeing if there's any golfers ducking around here. Hey, this is the uh, weekend of the Sony Open out at the Eye Country Club. And um, every Thursday, we have the Kaimuki Christian Open out at Fort Shafter. There's no relation between the two. I doubt that you'd qualify for the Sony Open, but you'd be welcome to join us for Nine Holes on Thursday which we go out there and play nine holes. Now, um, one day we were playing there, and afterwards Jay Jarman said, you know, we play here every Thursday. How come we're still terrible? And Gene Smith said, it's because we never practice. Well, that's true. It's boring to practice. You've got to go to the driving range and just hit balls and everything. Um, our game out at Fort Shafter resembles golf, but it's more about friendship and fellowship. But if you want to get better, you've got to practice. But there's another element that might be important. Wally Armstrong was a PGA Tour professional. He used to have a uh, clinic down at the Diamond Head Driving Range back in the 1980s. And uh, he's a committed Christian. He and author Jim Sheard wrote a book called Playing the Game. It's a devotional, just showing the parallels between the game of golf and life. And if you've ever played golf, the the parallels are infinite and amazing. And uh, here's what they say in this little preface to this book. In golf, there seem to be as many self-appointed teachers as there are players. While most players are searching for their perfect swing, often they talk as if they have found the remedy to their golf swing and everyone else's. Wise players will seek a capable pro to teach them in achieving their potential. So it's one thing to practice, but if you're just practicing, you know, your flaws, they just exaggerate. So a pro can be helpful. They continue, while every individual walks a different path in life, we each have the opportunity for eternal life through Jesus Christ. He is able to teach, guide, and instruct us through the eternal wisdom of the Bible. As in golf and life, this journey is not based on how much you have read, nor on the level or your level of knowledge. Instead, it is about your application of God's truth on the course of daily living. So... Truth is important and knowledge is important, but as we are in this series called Improving Your Serve, because we want to focus on that component of Keala O Yesu, the path of Jesus, discipleship, for these next several weeks, for many of us it's not a lot more knowledge that we need about serving, but it's the application of that knowledge in our daily experience. And so I want to challenge each of us as we leave here today to put into practice what we learned from the master, the pro himself, Jesus, uh, from John chapter 13, because he's the one that, uh, well, in fact, last week from Matthew chapter 20, he said, if any one of you wishes to be great, he must be the servant of all, and Jesus Practiced what he preached in this passage we're going to look at. He served and he showed us how to serve in the components. So there's an outline in your bulletin. I want to call attention to three lessons that we can learn from the pro who taught us not only in his life but through his death how to serve. Here's the first In order to humbly serve as Jesus did, we must understand our identity. John opens this 13th chapter, but before we get there, I want to just mention the background. This is the conclusion of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry. He's worked his miracles to validate his teaching. Now he's come up to Jerusalem with his disciples for the feast of the Passover, but more than that, he knew that hostility had risen to the extent that this would be his final trip to Jerusalem that uh, the time had come for him to offer himself as a sacrifice. And so John begins this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knew that he was about to leave, but he wasn't focused on leaving. He was focused on loving His disciples right to the end. And by the way, wherever we're at in life, we're all going to be leaving in the not-too-distant future in the scheme of things. But we need to be focused not on that, but on loving the people around us because we love God. And that's all that really counts and lasts for eternity is our relationships with others. Jesus understood that. But as John moves on, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the contrast in the identity that Jesus had and that one of his disciples had. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So you have Jesus on one hand and you have Judas on the other. Judas, well, the enemy, the devil, had already put it into his heart to betray the Son of God. He was planning to do so. He'd been thinking upon this. What was he thinking and why was he thinking this? He'd been with Jesus through these years of ministry. I mean, people, scholars debate why Judas had stooped to this level. Was it greed for those 30 pieces of silver? Surely not. Was it a power play, as some suggest, because he wanted to force Jesus' hand to establish the earthly kingdom? Maybe. Whatever it was, he was pursuing his own interests, self-interests. And so his identity was wrapped up in himself. And that was confusing and ultimately condemning for Judas. Jesus, by contrast, it says knew everything had been given into his hands by the Father. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from, that he would come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father. That was his identity. Encased in human flesh, he knew exactly who he was. And that freed him to serve. That's so important that we see that that Freedom came from his understanding of his identity. That's true for us as well, by the way. If it's all about ourselves, if we're driven by self interest, then we're not free to serve others. We're bound to serve ourselves. But if we know our identity in Christ, if we are in Christ and have an identity in Christ, we're liberated. The chains are broken as we sang about this morning, to serve those around us. Tomorrow, across the nation, uh, there's a celebration, a holiday, Martin Luther King Day. And I really believe that it's probably still celebrated or not celebrated with mixed feelings in a lot of places. I also believe that there's a lot of misunderstanding and ignorance about the person of Martin Luther King. I mean, Martin Luther King really stepped into the limelight in the mid-1950s. I was just starting kindergarten when some of the protests were happening down south. I was up north in Nebraska. But we heard the rumors about Dr. King, that he was a communist, uh, that he was a, a womanizer, and all kinds of things about him. And it was only really decades later, I think, that it became known that the FBI, members of the FBI, were promulgating some of these rumors. Politicians were using them many times for their own gain. And the record was really distorted about who he was. Many people today don't even realize he was a Baptist pastor. He's a seminary graduate. And uh, he had been thrust into the limelight, actually, reluctantly. I learned some of the things that I've learned about Dr. King from Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a great Christian writer. He grew up in Georgia in a small church that was very racist, he said. And he said, they, he said I was a bigot uh, through those years of my life. He was really a contemporary of mine. But he said, we knew all the terrible things about Dr. King and, and such. But he wrote a book, Yancey did, called, Soul Survivor, 13 unlikely mentors who helped me survive the church. And one of them was Dr. King. And uh, he said uh, he changed his understanding when he came to understand who this man was. Now, make no mistake, Martin Luther King had feet of clay. He had his issues. But so does every servant of God. You look in scripture and down through the ages, But there are some components of his life that you can't overlook if you're going to deal in reality and that I think have relevance when we consider what it means to truly serve the Lord. He was 26 years old. He was a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama when a crisis had broken out. He had been to seminary and he'd studied the word and he'd studied the teachings of Jesus, but he'd also gone to India. He studied Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolent resistance and, and uh, that had toppled the empire and, and freed India as a nation from colonial rule. And he studied that. He came to Montgomery when a crisis broke out and most of you are aware of what it was. It was when Rosa Parks stepped onto that bus, a city bus, And uh, she made her way to the fifth row. That's for the colored section. And uh, sat down, and there were three other black folks in that row. And they came to a stop. The bus started filling up in the front. And the the bus driver said, you all move to the back. And so the other three did. And Rosa Parks, an older seamstress, said, I'm not moving. He said, I'll have you arrested. She said, you may do so. And he did. And that caused all kinds of consternation in Montgomery. And so the pastors in that community turned to this young pastor, Dr. King, and asked him to organize a protest. So he organized and called for a bus boycott because the blacks, most of them didn't drive. They they rode the buses to their work. And uh, he asked them, don't ride the buses, and uh, let's see if we can make an impact here. Here's what he said about this later. When I went to Montgomery as a pastor, I had not the slightest idea that I would later become involved in a crisis in which nonviolent resistance would be applicable. I neither started the protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call of the people for a spokesman. When the protest began, my mind, consciously or unconsciously, was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount with its sublime teachings on love. And to the Gandhian movement or method on nonviolent resistance. Martin Luther King's identity at that point was a pastor, but then he had to decide is it more than that? Is it a disciple of Jesus who said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn the other also? And he decided that's how he would lead this protest. And there were others, by the way, that joined with him ultimately and eventually in it who bailed on him, I mean Ralph Abernathy, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, folks like Malcolm X who decided later on this isn't working because it didn't seem to be for a long time but he stayed the course because he knew his identity was a follower of Christ. And so he chose not to respond with violence but to call for a simple peaceful boycott protest. I believe that when you and I understand our identity in Christ, if we're followers of his, that that will free us to serve. But we have to know what Jesus knew. And that is, among other things, that God the Father has given all things freely into our hands. I can share several verses on this, but here's one from Romans chapter 8, after he talks about all that we have in the gospel. He said, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Think about that. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? When we believed the gospel, when we opened our hearts to Christ, we received Christ and with him all things that Christ has. We're heirs of God and uh, we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter said not only do we have salvation he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Sometimes we act like we're spiritually impoverished but when we know our identity in Christ when we know that he's given all things freely to us and where we've come from yes we came from a life of sin and we had to acknowledge that in repentance. But he, he created us. We know we've come from God. And he will redeem us. In fact, Paul, the apostle, says this to the church in Ephesus. In him also Christ, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. When we believed the gospel, when we put our faith in Christ and his death and his resurrection, God put the Holy Spirit of God within us. And that was his pledge, that we belong to him, and when we leave this earth, we're going back to him, because he He owns us. He bought us through the blood of Christ. That is our identity. And when we understand that, we're no longer enslaved to self. We no longer have to serve our own purposes and agenda. But in any and every circumstance, we can choose to serve the Lord by serving others because we have been delivered. We have been set free to do so. Secondly, in order to humbly serve as Jesus did, we must overcome gravity. It may sound a little strange, but consider verse 4. It says, Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room celebrating that Passover feast. They were around a table, but not like the pictures we've seen that... Leonardo da Vinci painted, where they're all seated on one side for the photo op. And that was a 15th century, 16th century picture of how it would have been there in Italian dress. But actually in the first century we know they were, they were reclined around a low table. And they, had, they would lean on a couch and eat with one hand. And they were already reclining when Jesus got up and laid aside his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist. And when he did that, they would have all understood that's the garb of a slave. That's how a slave would dress when he would prepare to wash the feet of those who had come in. And that was a typical custom because your feet were dirty. That was a necessary thing. And that was just what one of the disciples should have done. But Jesus did it. He overcame gravity when he got up and he laid aside his robe but he laid aside not only his outer garments he laid aside his right to remain reclined. He laid aside his position. Philippians says he humbled himself he emptied himself. He laid aside the privilege that should have been his to allow one of the others to serve. But no, He didn't. He chose to lay all that aside because he had come to serve. I believe in each of our lives, if we're going to serve, we're going to need to lay some things aside. Let me tell you something that uh, Martin Luther King laid aside. He knew that when he'd been asked to organize a protest that the repercussions for him and his family would be great. Uh, He knew that uh, he'd pay a great price for that. When his leadership of this protest was announced, the threats began to come. He was uh, threatened by the Ku Klux Klan. Even the police harassed him. He was arrested for going 30 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone and thrown in jail for that. He was released, and one night at midnight, He received a phone call, and he related this anonymous phone call, went like this, "'Nigger, we are tired of you and your mess. "'If you are not out of this town in three days, "'we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house.'" It was midnight. His little girl and his wife were sleeping in another room, and he said, "'I was filled with fear.'" Poured myself a cup of coffee and sat at the table. And then he wrote this. He said, And I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. I mean, he'd been to seminary. But he was a pastor's kid, and he realized, I've been living off my daddy's faith. It's time that I have this faith. He said, and I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But, Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I need your courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. That's the words of an old hymn. Three nights later, a bomb exploded on their front porch and shattered the windows in the night, but it didn't injure any of him or his family. And he said, my religious experience a few nights before gave me the strength to face it. Six years ago, Dee and I were visiting son Rocky and Annadare and our grandkids in Nashville. And Rocky took me down into Alabama for a golf and fishing trip for my birthday. And we stopped in Montgomery, and we took the bus tour of Montgomery, and it was an amazing tour. One of the places we stopped was at the home that Dr. King and his wife lived in at that time, a humble home there in Montgomery, and, and they told the story uh, about what had happened the night before the bus boycott was to take effect. And Dr. King said that uh, they had a sleepless night, that they didn't know if the call for that boycott would really happen or not. And uh, so finally that morning his wife walked out on the porch and she said, they're empty, they're (laughs) empty. The buses were empty. And black people came walking later into that city to their various and respective places of work. People responded. Uh, because he had been willing to lay aside his fear in order to serve what he believed to be God's will. If you and I are going to serve in our marriages, in our families, in the place that we work, in this community, or in this church, a ministry in this church, then we've got to lay some things aside. It might be different for each one of us. It probably will be. Some of us may need to lay aside our fear. Fear of what others may think, the repercussions of serving. Maybe we need to lay aside our pride. Serve people that we would think would be beneath us or whatever. Maybe we need to lay aside our apathy and uh, realize there's people that need something here and I can do something about it. Or maybe we need to lay aside our distractions because those really are self-interests. And if I'm going to serve this need, I've got to lay that aside. Whatever it might be, if we're going to serve, we not only need to know our identity in Christ as servants of God, but we've got to overcome gravity, get up, and lay aside whatever is keeping us from serving. Well, Jesus wasn't the only one that got up that night from the table. So did Judas. In fact, while they were eating, Jesus said, "Uh, the one that will betray me will be the one that I hand this morsel to that I've dipped. And he handed it to Judas. Judas received it, and then it says in verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. First he'd put the thought into his heart of betraying him. Now Satan enters Judas, and therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Jesus not only knew his own identity, he knew the identity of his betrayer. So Judas got up to betray the Son of God because his identity was wrapped up in himself. Jesus, on the other hand, got up to wash the feet of the disciples and ultimately the next day to go to the cross because he knew his identity that he'd been sent by God and given by God all things so that he was free to serve. You and I need to know those things in order to serve as well. And there's one more thing. In order to humbly serve as Jesus did, we must act with sagacity. Some of you are probably thinking, what is sagacity? The only reason I really know is because I was looking for something that rhymed with identity and gravity. (laughs) And when I clicked on understanding, this was one of the synonyms, okay? Sagacity. And it means an acute, acuteness of mental discernment and soundness of judgment. It means wisdom. It means understanding. We need to serve with understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He understood exactly what he was doing. And he wanted his disciples to understand it as well. Verse 5 says, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Simon said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said, Never will you wash my feet, Jesus. Now he's embarrassed. Now he realizes, I probably should have done this, but no way are you going to do this. And Jesus said, Unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Jesus, uh, or Peter then responded, Well, then wash all of me, Jesus. I'm all in. And Jesus said, no, he who has bathed needs only his feet washed. And so he was able to continue on. And it says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Do you think Peter got it that night? Do you think Peter did understand? I think we can safely say he didn't. He may have understood intellectually what Jesus was saying, but we know from the book of Acts, from Galatians, where he got in trouble with the Gentiles over disagreement with Paul from his own writings that it would take years for Peter to work this out in his own life but he did become a great servant of the Lord but I think it's important to note that that it's not an instantaneous process for any of us. We hear these things, but it's in living them out. It's in practicing these things, in experiencing the need to serve, and then stepping out to do so, that we grow in becoming the servants that Christ has called us to be. And one of the ways sometimes that churches have attempted to do this is by having a foot-washing service. So next Sunday morning... No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to have a foot-washing service. We could. We have in the past. And that's okay. But that's not what Jesus really was calling on those disciples or us to do. To have a, an annual foot-washing service. That was the need of the moment there and it illustrated that, that they and we are to become servants to one another, serving in the areas that are needed. Sometimes it would be great if we could satisfy our serving by having an annual foot-washing service and then forget it the rest of the year, right? But no, he said, I want you to be servants and see the needs and serve with understanding the needs of those around you. It really wasn't about washing feet. It was about serving one another's needs. I want you to notice something else in this passage. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet... Judas was still there. Think about that. He washed the feet of his soon betrayer, and he knew it. And he said this was an example to the disciples. So one of the things that he's given us an example here of is that we're to serve the needs not only of those whom we like and who like us, but even of those who don't like us and we may not care for, as he served Judas on this occasion. Well, Martin Luther King, just back to him one more time, he continued to lead and he continued to maintain his course of nonviolence even when blacks in the South were being beaten mercilessly. They were being uh, shot down with fire hoses, dogs were turned loose upon them time and again, uh, thrown in jail. And many of them, their homes were shot up and they were incited and arrested for causing riots. When that happened, that's amazing when we look back on it. Many of us know about the account of that church in Birmingham. A Sunday morning, four little girls in Sunday school were killed when the Ku Klux Klan set off a bomb there. There was one event that many of us are aware of that happened that historians say was a turning point in this entire protest. And that is uh, when the folks were marching, led by Dr. King, to Selma. And they came to a bridge outside of Selma, Alabama. And Sheriff Clark was there with his troops, and they were mounted on horses, and they had nightsticks. And he gave the order to charge. And before they did, most of those black people got on their knees, and they were praying. And they galloped into that crowd of people and were flailing away with their nightsticks and cracking heads, and people were going to the ground. ABC that night was showing a movie about Nuremberg in Germany and they diverted right to this and began to show live footage of what was happening there at that bridge at Selma. And the nation was shocked and appalled. And eight days later, the president sent a civil rights bill to Congress and it passed because people realized what was happening. King recorded a letter in the Birmingham jail. It's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. It was smuggled out in the margins of newspapers by friends or even on toilet papers. We'd write it and they'd smuggle it out. Powerful letter. And one of the things in that letter is this, and I think it's instructive. He said, We love men not because we like them. Nor, e- nor because their ways appeal to us, nor even because they possess some kind of divine spark. We love every man because God loves him. Martin Luther King acted with sagacity, with understanding. He acted in Jesus' way, understanding that you serve because you love God and because you know that God loves the people around you. You and I can do that if we know our identity and uh, we're willing to rise up, to get up, to overcome gravity, lay aside what keeps us from serving and act with understanding. I want to close with an illustration from golf. I mean, Wally Armstrong also wrote a devotional book for golfers. uh, And it's, it's, oh gosh, see this is, I just illustrated the problem. It's called... In his grip. Isn't that great? In his grip. Grip's important, right? Look at this. If you don't have the grip right, that is the most basic thing in golf. There's different grips, but you better get it right. And that's what they say about life. If we are in the grip of God, then we can do what he's called us to do. Serve him. Judas wasn't. He was in the grip of sin. And that happens when we're wrapped up in ourselves. And so folks, this week I want us to consider the master, the pro himself, how he served and choose to serve as Jesus did. It's a decision, not just initially, maybe this morning, to become more of a servant, but we'll be tested again and again this week and we'll have the opportunity to choose to serve because we're freed from ourselves by our faith in him. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for coming and serving us with your life and with your death and loving us and leading us to become servants of yours. And I would pray for each of us this morning, wherever we're at in relation to you, that we might surrender, that we might believe, that we might receive you and all that you have. And from that identity, Step out to serve. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.